weary and need rest, to all who mourn and long for comfort, to all who fail and desire strength, to all who sin and need a savior. Emmanuel Church opens wide her doors with a welcome from Jesus, friend of sinners. Now here's this week's message. Listen carefully to the word of God. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up, knelt down before him, and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked him. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. He said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these from my youth. Looking at him, Jesus loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. But he was dismayed by this demand, and he went away grieving because he had many possessions. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were astonished at his words. Again, Jesus said to them, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. They were even more astonished, saying to one another, And who could be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, With a man, with man it is impossible, but not with God, because all things are possible with God. People began, Peter began to tell him, Look, we have left everything and followed you. Truly I tell you, Jesus said, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the gospel who will not receive a hundred times more. Now at this time, houses brothers and sisters, mothers and children, and fields with persecutions and eternal life in the age to come. But many who are first will, the last will be first. But many who are first will be last, and last first, amen. Good afternoon. I'm a, I'm a little miffed that Jason called me a guest preacher. I know I've been gone a while, but that's just, that's just mean. Um, yeah, uh, it's, it's a joy to be with you guys. Let's pray. Lord, we see how heavy the demands are to be able to enter your kingdom. So even now as we approach your word, we ask, Lord, that you would help us by the power of your spirit. Uh, not just to, to hear it, but to understand it. Not just understand it, but to be able to heed it. Going to do that by your help. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I asked that I'd rather have Jesus be uh, in the precinct, so if you have complaints, bring them to me. Uh, 
uh, I sang that song growing up, um, but I didn't know the lyrics by heart um, because my dad would make us sing it in family worship almost, I want to say a couple times a week uh, whenever we'd have it. Uh, and it's one of his favorite hymns. But my dad thought that somehow you could use family worship as an opportunity to teach us Korean as well. So I didn't understand any of the words. I just sang it. Uh, I knew the melody. And then as I grew up, the lyrics became harder to sing. Uh, one reason is because I actually learned what the words meant. Right? And, and as you grow up, the words become harder to sing. That you'd rather have Jesus in silver or gold, worldwide fame. It's easy to say that when you don't have much. But then you get a job. Start to pay taxes. Right? And, and the conveniences of life start to move from, from desires or wishes to security and, and provision. It's easy for wealth to grip our hearts. We see Jesus doing here in this passage for us this afternoon is challenging that security and idol that we may have. So this is going to be the main idea for us this afternoon, that, that following Jesus costs everything. Following Jesus costs everything. We'll be looking at the whole passage, but mainly on that first half with Jesus interacting with this rich young ruler. Read with me from verse 17. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up, knelt down before him, and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked him. No one is good except God alone. A young man runs up to Jesus. In other uh, Gospels, you see that this man is rich. And he's also a ruler. And he runs up to Jesus and he asks him, What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus chooses to answer this young man's question with another question. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God. Now, now, Jesus here isn't denying his divinity. A lot of people kind of point to this passage and, and cite it as though it's proof that Jesus somehow is trying to distance himself from a label or, or as God. But that's not what Jesus is doing as much as Jesus is pressing a point on this young dude. I remember one time I was having lunch with a pastor friend of mine uh, at a Popeye's. It was actually the Popeye's that went viral because the rat was scurrying on the floor. I love that Popeye's. <laughs> I still miss it. I mean, everyone knew it was grungy, but it was so good. Um, we sat down to eat. We're sitting at the table. And, uh, and, and my friend Andy asks me, would you like ketchup for your fries? And I said, no, Andy, I'm good. And without skipping a beat, he looked down to his food and he said, no one's good but God. <laughs> Thanks, Andy. <laughs> I was saying I didn't need ketchup. Andy decided to raise the bar and comment on my sinful nature. <laughs> the rich young ruler here calls Jesus good teacher out of respect. But Jesus raises the bar to talk about his own godly nature. Jesus knows that the title of good master applies to him in the ultimate sense. Because he is God. And what he's asking this, this young man is, do you realize what you just said? Do you really mean it? Who do you think Jesus is? The rich young ruler approaches Jesus with respect. I mean, it'd be, he'd be difficult not to respect. He probably heard stories about Jesus' teaching. He, he knows that Jesus performs miracles. He taught us to love our neighbor. 
good morals for us to live by. The Sermon on the Mount is probably talked about all over the place. The young man clearly values what Jesus has to say. I mean, verse 17 says that, that he runs up to Jesus and kneels before him. This is a guy who heard that Jesus was in town, stopped everything he was doing, and prioritized being able to interact with Christ. Sounds like a man who's desperate for answers. And he knew that Jesus could point him in the right direction. The problem with this young man isn't that he doesn't respect Jesus, but that he doesn't revere him as God. Respect isn't enough. Who do you think Jesus is? We live in a day where respect often replaces agreement. Right? A place when, where you hear something really crazy. Instead of engaging with the person, you just respond like, well, that's great that that's like your opinion, man. And that response can often shut down real dialogue. Especially when you think about heavy topics that are uncomfortable to talk about. Right? Especially a topic that's as toxic as religion. We could be tempted to just kind of throw our hands up, plead ignorance, and walk away with respect for all religions equally. I mean, isn't it arrogant to assume that Christianity is right? Isn't it too exclusive to say that Jesus is the only way to salvation? Isn't it more humble to consider all possibilities as equally plausible? I think there's a lot to affirm there. There's certainly a way that you could talk about religion where you're not really being a champion for the faith, you're just being a jerk. Uh, I think it's right to, to take the time to consider other perspectives, to be willing to challenge your own perspectives that you may have or presuppositions. But having a stance on who Jesus is isn't narrow-minded. Isn't narrow-minded. That when Jesus himself says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, what he's making is a statement of fact. Jesus is either right or he's wrong. It's not that Jesus is being arrogant by asserting a statement of truth about himself. I mean, all religions do this. If you ask a devout Muslim whether he thinks that I'm going to go to heaven or hell, if he loves me, he's going to say that I'm going to hell. And if he were to ask me the same question, I'd say the same thing about him. While that Muslim friend may, may disagree with me about whether or not I'm correct in my religious opinion, we both are taking the claims of the other religion seriously. I'm actually treating that Muslim and his opinions with respect by disagreeing with him. That, that I understand that Muhammad is either right or he's wrong. And he understands that either what the Bible says is true or it's false. To say that all religions are equally true actually belittles the claims of all religions. You're essentially saying that if a religion actually says a statement of fact, that doesn't really matter. That you could just kind of plead neutrality. But almost all religions make statements of exclusivity. Jesus sees his divinity as a fact. It's not just his opinion. It's not just his perspective. A fact isn't narrow. It's either true or it's false. There is no neutral ground here. And Jesus is questioning the rich young ruler to challenge whether he sees who Jesus really is. Jesus isn't denying his divinity as much as he's raising the bar on what it means to be good. And you get to see why in verse 19. Jesus says, You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal. 
Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. So Jesus, the the good teacher, reminds the ruler of the good law. He mentions the the second table of 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 the Ten Commandments. And a rich young ruler hears all of that. And he tells Jesus that he's kept all of it. Sometimes people like to make fun of the rich young ruler and make him sound like he's very haughty. Let's give the rich young ruler the benefit of the doubt for a second. Uh, maybe he's responding with a, with a deeper inquiry. Like Jesus' answer was kind of canned, and he's not satisfied with it. I mean, you can imagine him asking, like, really? Is that, is that it? I've, I've done all of those things already. There, there has to be something else. After all, this guy was, by all, by all accounts, a good guy. He was nice. Right? He was a ruler. He was a stand-up citizen probably attended synagogue since he was a child, kept Sabbath, cared for his neighbors. And as a Hebrew, he learned the law from an early age. He probably had to memorize it, right? And and, and for for him, he already knows the rules to the game. He's got it all put together. He's got it all figured out. So when he hears the Ten Commandments, it's like someone citing the alphabet to him. I already know that. There has to be something else. But regardless of his intent, his answer shows that he doesn't really understand Jesus' point. That if the rich young man really understood the teaching of Jesus, he would have understood that Jesus expects more than what you do, but who you are. More than external actions, but internal affections. He would know that the bar is higher than not committing murder. It's not having hate in your own heart. It's not just not committing adultery. It's not having lust for anyone in your heart. It's not just not stealing. It's killing envy inside your own soul. That the law doesn't exist primarily as a manual for life, but as a mirror exposing who you are, convicting your heart, and letting you understand that you're not good. Instead, just minutes after hearing Jesus say that no one is good but God, he hears the law of God, and the rich young ruler responds by saying, I'm good too. His answer doesn't reveal humility, but rather pride. And this young man turns the mirror of God's law and turns it into a vanity. And Jesus cares too much about this guy to leave him in that state of trying to improve himself. See that in verse 21. This would be a long passage portion. Looking at him, Jesus loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. But he was dismayed by this demand. And he went away grieving because he had many possessions. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were astonished at his words. Again, Jesus said to them, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. They were even more astonished, saying to one another, Who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, because all things are possible with God. 
Jesus looks at this rich young ruler and identifies the one thing he could not get rid of. His stuff. Jesus tells him to sell everything he has and to give it to the poor. And the rich young man's heart shatters. Because he tried to serve both God and money. And he got caught. Wealth is a double-edged sword. On one hand, it can help us accomplish a ton of good things. Provide for our needs. Advance the gospel. On the other hand, it can pile up distractions and illusions of grandeur in such a way that actually blocks us from being able to see Jesus. Now, being wealthy doesn't make you sinful any more than being poor makes you holy. But... When you don't have much, you frequently have to confront the tension between what you want to have and what you don't have. You have to make difficult decisions more frequently. And and when you have a lot and you don't have to make decisions like that, you can start to trick yourself into thinking that you aren't actually attached to all the things that you have. But then when you're confronted with the possibility of potentially losing it, you find yourself clutching your purse. It's easy, Jesus says, for a camel to fit through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Here you can see Jesus' utter disregard for the status of the world. He's not afraid to speak hard words to people that have high status in society. He doesn't find it beneath him to help those who are in need. You see here that, that he tells a rich young man not just to get rid of his stuff. He doesn't say throw it all in the garbage. He says give it to the poor. Jesus cares about the least of these. You can see Christians embodying the spirit in the early church as they joyfully give to whoever has need. Pray that our church continues to be a church that has that kind of spirit to those that are low, downtrodden, not respected in society. I'm friends with a pastor who secretly ties his entire salary back to the church. Uh, His family situation allows his family to be able to take care of all their needs without the money that he receives from the church that he works at. So he secretly just gives it all back. No one as church knows that he does that. And and before you ask, he's not looking for another job. Uh, So so he's not coming here. Uh, I remember finding out and being really shocked that he was doing this. Um, And I asked him why he does it. And he told me two reasons. The first reason was because he actually believed in the church's ministry. That he believed that that the church's budget operated like a spiritual mutual fund. That the funds were actually being used for kingdom investment. So for him, it wasn't that he was doing the church any favors as much as he wanted rewards in the kingdom of heaven. He believed that the church was doing good work. So he was excited, enthusiastic, did not feel sorry for the church at all. Him giving money is not a pity party. It's a privilege. The second was because he loved, he relished the ability to have the world tell him all the things that he ought to value and look at it in his face and show with his actions that he couldn't care less. Now, Jason didn't ask me to talk about giving. Right, like he wasn't like, hey, you should preach Mark Dan. Right, that'd be really helpful. Right, uh, and I don't know your particular financial situation. Right? Let me just say a couple things to you as a brother in Christ who loves you. God 
Number one, God doesn't need your money. He doesn't need it. Right? This church can die tomorrow and God will be doing just fine. He doesn't need our funds to accomplish his mission. But I do want to encourage you that if you believe that Emmanuel is doing good work for the kingdom of heaven, advancing this kingdom on earth, if you believe that Jason does love you and is helping you and shepherding you in your spiritual life, if you want to see more people come to know Jesus, more Christians that are discipled, encouraged towards maturity, if you want to see more images of the glory of God, in Orange County and in the city of Fullerton, then give your money to this church. It's a good thing for you to do. It's not something that you should ever feel guilty about doing. It's actually a privilege before God. And we believe that all of the finances that we have, regardless of what percentage you choose to give, all of it belongs to the Lord. And one way that you get to look at the world and show that you couldn't care less about the things that it wants you to value it's by giving to the church. It's by giving to the church. So I want to encourage you to think and, and think thoughtfully about your finances. To be prayerful about it. To be excited at the work, at the work that this church does. I'm, I'm so grateful for this church. I'll talk more about it next week probably. But, but I'm eternally indebted to you all. Um, and that would not have happened if you guys didn't invest in this church's ministry. So thank you. Thank you. Uh, I'm going to try my best to get you guys as much money as I can, right? Uh, through other means, too. Going back to the story, is it in, but is it inherently wrong to have possessions? Should we feel guilty about going into our cars after the service? Or about sipping our Starbucks lattes? No. It's not wrong. I, I don't want you to feel bad about dropping $4 on a coffee. There's no verse in the Old Testament that commands that you must give up everything that you own and give it to the poor. The point that Jesus is trying to make here, though, is that when you start to elevate or when you start to place your security in your goods, you are functionally elevating it to the place of God. That's what you're doing. When you place your security in your goods. And anything that isn't God, that takes the place of God, is an idol. And Jesus loves this man and is showing him that he hasn't followed the law since he was a child. That if this young man really understood the stuff that he had learned since he was a toddler, he would have remembered the first command. You shall have no other gods before me. You can give everything you own. Like give away everything you own and still have a sinful heart. You get rid of greed, there'll just be another sin. Jesus is not interested in putting you in a perpetual game of spiritual whack-a-mole. The point is to realize that on your own, even with all the world's possessions, even with the world's status and respect, you are still lacking. The rich young man walks away dismayed. And that word for dismayed there is the same verb for describing kings and rulers being overthrown. And this young man is defeated. He's toppled over because he bowed the knee to his stuff. His hand couldn't let go of his cash to be able to grasp onto Christ. He was financially rich, but he was spiritually bankrupt. 
What about you? Everybody worships something. Whether it's stuff, security, status, success, anything else, we are all controlled by our own desires. Romans 3 says that there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. If we all look into the mirror of God's law, we're going to find that all of us are dirty. There's no smudge on the mirror. It's us. We're filthy and sinful. We're all found lacking. Which is why the disciples are right to say, now who can be saved? The rich young ruler walks away in grief, unable to let go of his things. I wish he knew that Jesus wasn't seeking merely to condemn him, but to save him. Look at, look at what it says there in verse 20, or, or verse 21. It says, looking at him, Jesus loved him. Loved him. Jesus looks at this rich young ruler, sees right through his self-righteous veneer. He sees the rich young ruler's idolatry. But rather than being repulsed by this guy's sin, Jesus is compelled by love. He's compelled by love. But he doesn't enable his sin either. Rather than allowing this guy to continue in his self-righteous delusion, Jesus lovingly reveals his sinful soul. Jesus responds to this guy in both compassion and conviction. He does the same for us. Jesus loves you too much to allow you to stay in the shackles of self-righteousness. While we're still trying to find reasons to justify ourselves and be good enough before God, Jesus smiles at you and says, you still lack one thing. One thing. The one thing that the rich young ruler lacked. The one thing that he really needed wasn't an instruction man. It was a person. He needed Jesus. All of us are sinful and deserving of death. And Jesus is the only one who could provide the eternal life that we seek. No one is good but God alone. And with man, it is impossible for a sinful man to enter into the kingdom of God. And so, God himself took on flesh and dwelt among us. In all other religions, you see prophets trying to instruct us on how to find God. In Jesus, you see God who takes on flesh to come find us. He who is rich beyond all splendor, all for love's sake, became as poor. Jesus lived the perfect life that you and I never could. He fulfilled the letter of the law perfectly. And on the cross, he bore the punishment for sins that you and I deserve for our sin. He put sin to death through his death. And three days later, he rose again victorious over sin and death. So if you turn from your sin and trust in him, he will provide that one thing you lack. When we use that word redemption, it's not just a spiritual word. It's a financial word. The idea is that we're in debt to God. And in Jesus, because of his sacrifice, because of his resurrection from the dead, his pockets are deep. And he's able to purchase us. Jesus gives you the one thing you lack by giving you himself.
Jesus asked the rich young ruler to give up all he had. But he was also offering him the most precious thing that he could ever give. Jesus will never ask of you more than what he himself has already given. Tim Keller says this, that the gospel is that we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dare believe. Yet at the same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. That's good news. And so the message of Christianity isn't about us just trying to flee bad and be good. It's about us leaving both our sin and our righteousness and running to Jesus. This means dying to everything that isn't Christ. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says that when Christ bids a man come, he bids him come and die. Is there anything in you that needs to die? Anything that's holding you from coming to him? Jesus demands everything you have, but offers you everything that you will ever need. You can go to him and you can throw yourself into his arms and know that he will take care of you. You can see the disciples' response in verse 28. Let's read the rest of the passage. Peter began to tell him, Look, we have left everything and followed you. Truly I tell you, Jesus said, there's no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the gospel who will not receive a hundred times more now at this time houses, brothers and sisters, mothers and children and fields with persecution and eternal life in the age to come. The many who are first will be last and the last first. Peter hears this heavy statement from Jesus and thought it was helpful to point out that the disciples managed to do what the rich man couldn't do. And rather than giving Peter a gold star, Jesus explains that those who follow Jesus are not those who get the short end of the stick. He says that if you follow him, you receive a hundredfold in this life. In this life. If you're in Christ, the most tangible example of this priceless treasure that you receive isn't heaven. It's your fellow church members. Notice what he says here. He says, in this life, not just when you die, not just when Jesus comes back and establishes the new heavens and new earth, you have a better treasure than all the world can offer right now. Right now. That, that we aren't just saved individually. We're adopted into a spiritual family. That's why prosperity preachers who cite this text mess up with the passage. First of all, they seem to conveniently leave out the persecution part. Secondly, they make it sound as though this is like Bernie Madoff's like, Ponzi scheme. That you can just put money in and God will somehow give tons of riches back. That's not what he's talking about. Think about lands. Think about brothers and sisters. Children. Fathers, mothers, all of those things are tied to your inheritance. To your inheritance. When someone passes away in your family, what do you receive? Houses, lands, family that you care for. And the idea that Jesus is painting here isn't earthly wealth that prosperity preachers peddle, but a rich inheritance that you have right now because of your spiritual family in Christ. 
This is precisely why, if I can make a side tangent, in the New Testament, you don't see as many commands to be fruitful and multiply or to get married. In fact, Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 says that it's preferred to be single. That's good to be single. Why is that? Not because I lack a family by not being married, but because when I'm in Jesus, I have you. And you guys are as precious to me as my own blood because we're in Christ. Because you are precious and dear to me. And because when Christ adopts us as as our brother and sister, God becomes our father. Which means that you are infinitely precious. I hope you value your church like that. If you're not part of a church, I want to encourage you to commit to one. Not because you need to, in some duty sense, but because churches are precious. And when you join one, you get to have a family who cares, seeks after you, who, who loves you. And, and what joining a church does isn't just some kind of cold process of becoming a member, putting your name on a list, on a piece of paper. What, what, what joining a church does is it makes explicit those family commitments. It's my way of being able to say, hey, I'm part of your family and I'm not leaving. I love you. I'm committed to you. And when you're in a family, you don't get preoccupied with whether or not you're getting more out of the relational arrangement. You care for them. Lawrence, uh, uh, dudes in, in church history often don't have last names, so Lawrence, right, uh, was a deacon in the early church. And, and the Roman emperor Valerian decided to go through and start persecuting more churches, and, and he ran into... Uh, Deacon Lawrence's church and demanded that he bring all the church's treasures into Rome. He was basically uh, um, pillaging the church. Lawrence agreed, and later he walked into to the Roman palace, lined up the poor, the widow, the disenfranchised of his church, presented him before Valerian and said, here are the true treasures of the church. And he, because of that, he was martyred to death. The rich young ruler couldn't get past the value of his stuff. I wish he could see the value of the Savior. Because if he did, giving up everything wouldn't be a burden. The community that he would have joined would have been precious to him. All these things would have been a blessing and a privilege. Spurgeon said, all is safe, which is given up to Christ. And that which is kept back from him, whatever it may be, shall prove to be a curse to you. Following Jesus costs all we have in exchange. We gain more than we could possibly ask for or think. I pray that all of us, this week, and for the rest of our lives, will be able to let go of whatever seeks to grip our hearts. And eagerly hold on to Jesus. Our loving, providing, secure Savior. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Pray, Lord, that we would learn from this example. Pray, Lord, that you would help us to let go of our things and to be able to hold on to you. That is harder than it sounds. We know we can only do that with your help. 
So we pray that you would help us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you were encouraged and blessed by the word. We'd like to invite you to join us for Sunday worship. If you would like to know our service time and further information, please visit us online at www.emmanueloc.com. And so, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen. Thank you.